This morning we're going to continue our series in the study of the Bible and kind of what we've hoped to show throughout this series is that everything from Genesis chapter 1 all the way to Revelation chapter 22 is a story. It's a story that points to Jesus. The Bible isn't a compilation of some 66 books with random historical facts in it, but rather it's a whole story from the Garden of Eden all the way to the end of time that points to and is about Jesus. Now this is a chart that we've referenced throughout every one of these studies, and it's a good chart. We're trying to reinforce the biblical chronology of the Bible. There was a period in time in the beginning when God spoke to the fathers individually. God spoke to the patriarchs of the family. He would say, Abraham, go and do this. Noah, go and do that. And God had a direct commutative relationship with those people. And that age ended when Moses descended from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments. And God entered into a new covenant with his people. God would no longer deal with the patriarchs of the family, but God would have a relationship with the nation, the nation of Israel. And they were governed by the Ten Commandments that Moses gave them. But they were also governed by some 660-some-odd laws. And it was a burdensome law that they were to carry as God's people. And it's during this time that Jesus lived, he operated, he conducted his ministry, he had his um, disciples with him. It's this time that he was killed, that he was buried, and that he was resurrected. And we know on the day of Pentecost, Peter preached the first gospel sermon. And that opened up the keys to the kingdom or the church. And now the people are entering into a new dispensation, that is the age of Christ. No longer are we bound by the laws of Moses, but we're bound by the words and the teachings of Jesus Christ. That's established authority. That's established law. That's the age that I live in. That's the age that you live in. That's the age that our grandparents lived in. That's the age that the Apostle Paul lived in. And that's the age that we will be in until the end of the world, until the end of time when Christ returns. And so today we're going to continue looking at the age of, the Christ, age of Christ. But we're going to look at specifically the institution of the church within this age. And we're going to start... In John chapter 17 and verse 20 through 21. Now in John chapter 17, this is Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus had just had the Last Supper with his disciples. He had just washed the feet of the disciples. He knows that his time is imminent. He knows that his life on earth is short-lived. And so the Bible says that he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And we know that he prayed there three times. And he takes with him three of his closest disciples, James, Peter, and John. And he prays this prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, if you've been keeping up, as was mentioned here earlier about the news, you know, there's a major conflict in the Middle East. And if you watch the news, they're constantly showing maps of the nation of Israel. And you can see that the nation of Israel is this small little country on the western side of the Mediterranean Sea that's about the size of New Jersey. But midway through that nation, more towards the eastern side of that coast, uh, the eastern side of that nation, you will see the city of Jerusalem. And the Bible tells us that Gethsemane is at the foothills of the Garden of, uh, of, of Mount. It's in the Garden of the, excuse me, the foothills of the Garden of Mount of Olives. The foothills of the Mount of Olives is a garden that is in Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, and that's where Jesus goes to pray this prayer. And it's in this prayer that we see this deep, intimate relationship that Jesus had with God. It's kind of a glimpse into his heart and the things that he was experiencing at that time, the extreme anxiety that he was under, 
the extreme duress, the extreme fear. And he prays this prayer. You know, people towards the end of their life, usually the final hours of their life or the final days of their life, they usually express the things that are most pressing on their hearts and on their minds, things that they want to acknowledge or address. And we see that Jesus in the final hours of his life is expressing something that's pressing on his heart. Now, we'll begin reading in verse 20. It says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that you may also be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. When you look at Jesus' prayer, and you go and you count the times that he says the word one as it relates to unity, he says it six times. That what was pressing on his heart is that his disciples would be one or would be unified after he left this earth. Now it says right there, I do not pray for these alone. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the disciples. He's talking about the disciples he brought with him into the garden. He's talking about the disciples that are back wherever they were. That he, they would be unified in their mission of spreading the gospel. But not only is he praying for them, he says, I pray for those who believe in me through their word. These men went out and spread the gospel. Some of these men recorded the things that Jesus said. So Jesus is praying specifically not just for the disciples, but he's praying for all of us because we believe in Jesus through their word and through their testament. You know, we, we pray because we have things that press on us or things in our mind or things that we, we ask God to give us or to help us with. But it's interesting to see even more into the character of Jesus that he's praying for each and one of us, the Son of God. So why is it such a big deal that we be unified in this prayer? Why is this such a big deal? You know, it, it's good to have unity. It's, it's great to have unity. We should have unity. It's great to be able to congregate with people that you like and people you get along with and people who you can go to Rangers games with and, and fellowship with and enjoy events together and people's companies. That's, that's a good thing. And those are all byproducts of unity. But those are not the main purpose of why we are to be unified. The main purpose of why we are to be unified is what Jesus said here. You see the word that says that? You could put the word so in front of that. So that the world may believe that you sent me. The reason that we need to be unified is not just so that we can get along and tolerate each other and have fellowship with one another, but that the people can see our relationships and know that Jesus Christ exists and that he is the Son of God. Could you imagine taking somebody from Palestine, somebody who's a Jew right now, and they convert to Christianity and now they're sitting in the same building serving one another, worshiping God, the outside world looking in would look to that and they say, that's not natural. That's not something that just occurs naturally. But there's something more powerful behind that. And that's the power of expressing that Jesus is the Son of God when we're unified and we do that. So unity was the purpose or one of the main things that was on his heart as he prayed in the garden. So, what will be our rule and our guide? For us to be unified, there has to be some form of governance. There has to be something that draws us together to have a structure of unity within the, in this body. And as we're going to see, it's the church. And individually, our roles that we serve within the church and the relationships that we have within the church. That's going to be the rule and a guide. 
In John chapter 12, Jesus is talking about people believing in him and people disbelieving in him. People accepting him and people rejecting him. And the prophet Isaiah is quoted in the 12th chapter. It says that Isaiah said that there would be people who witnessed their prophecy, but who witnessed Jesus. They saw the signs, they saw the miracles that he performed, and that they would believe that he truly was the Son of God. But they would harden their hearts against him, and they would reject him. And specifically, it points out the Jewish religious leaders and the Pharisees, how they saw the signs, they saw the miracles, they believed in Jesus, but because they were afraid of being expelled from the synagogues, they rejected him. And so in response to that, Jesus says this, if you see me, then you've seen God. You want to know what God's character is like? You want to know what God thinks? When you look at Jesus and you see somebody who we can't see in our realm, you see who God is. Jesus said, I came into the world to be a light into the world. If you will abide in me, you won't live in darkness. So... Could you imagine if we didn't have the scriptures, if we didn't have the authority in the words of Jesus, we wouldn't know what's right versus what's wrong. We wouldn't know what happens after death. We wouldn't know how to have peace with God. But because Jesus spoke those words, those words are authoritative, they're from God. And Jesus said, I didn't come into the world to judge the world. I came into the world to save the world. It's very similar to what John says in John chapter 3, and verse 17, where he says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but through him might be saved, that the world through him might be saved. So Christ didn't come to condemn and to judge us, he came to save us. But right after Jesus makes this statement, I didn't come to judge you, but to save you, he says this in verse 48 He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. Jesus said, if you don't believe me and you reject me, it's not so much me condemning you. You've condemned yourself because the things that I'm saying to you were told to me by God to say. The things that I teach, I was told by God to say these things. So if you're not going to believe me, you're going to be lost because you're not rejecting me, you're rejecting the authority of God. So what we see in that is that the words of Jesus are authority. They're from God. They're the structure and the rule that we take as the church that we follow to have this unity that Jesus prayed for. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 3, How shall we escape if we neglect a a great salvation, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? So Jesus spoke with authority. Just like in Matthew chapter 5 when Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, those were recorded, that was recorded by man. That's in the scriptures. We hear what Jesus said. And those words are truth. Those words are authoritative. They're from God. The Bible, again, it's not just some random collection of historical events, but it's the, it's the word of God presented to us through the words of Jesus. We sing that song, Ancient Words. Those words that were written thousands of years ago with people walking around with sandals and robes still stand true today in our technologically advanced AI world about how to deal with relationships with people, about how to have a good marriage, about how to have peace with God. All of those things have never changed. The truth behind them has never changed. So the words of Jesus are, again, our God and our authority 
in the church. In Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 4, an example of that is this, when Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, he says, when you read, you may have understanding, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. So Paul says, when I write this letter to you, I want you to understand the mystery of Christ. So the question is, what is the mystery of Christ? Well, in verse 1, in the introduction of this letter, Paul identifies himself as the he identifies himself as Paul, a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ for the Gentiles. Now the Apostle Paul was a Jew, but one of the reasons that he was called into the ministry, one of his main purposes, was to go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And that's what Paul is saying here. The mystery of the Gentiles is the good news, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ for people who were not of the Jewish faith. About three years ago, I took one of those DNA tests to try to determine what my, what my ancestry was. I thought, last name Smith, I'd probably be mostly British Isle, maybe some Scottish or some Irish or something like that. What I found out, if the test was accurate, is that the overwhelming majority of my blood is Germanic, from Germany. A lot of my ancestors came from Germany. Jessica's was too. I'm a Gentile. I didn't see anywhere in that report where I had any family members from Jerusalem or from the nation of Israel that were a part of uh, the, the nation of Israel. I was a part from that nation. I'm a Gentile. Today we're going to take a collection. We're going to send that money to uh, Christians in Nigeria. Those Christians in Nigeria are on an African continent. They weren't from Jerusalem. They're Gentiles. But Christ died for them, just like Christ died for me. The good news, the mystery of the mystery of Christ is that God is going to now allow people into his family who are of different heritage. Paul says this in his letter to Timothy, from, from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I charge you, therefore, preach the word. So the Bible, from cover to cover, has instruction to make us complete as Christians. Everything that we need to know about what it is to be saved, about how to live our lives, about how to live in relation to one another, about how to live, have a relationship with God, all of those things are found within the scriptures. When we need to be corrected, the Bible instructs us on how we need to be corrected. So again, the question, what's the authority that governs us as a people that are to be unified? It's the scriptures. It's the word. It's the words of Jesus. So what should we call ourselves? You know, if we're going to be unified, there has to have a we have to have a common identity. In Acts chapter eleven and verse twenty-six, it says, "And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch." Now, what I want to point out is that the Christians in Antioch didn't get together and put their arms around each other and huddle up and say, what are we going to call ourselves? Let's call ourselves Christians. It says, in Antioch, or the people of Antioch looked at them and called them Christians. Antioch was the third largest city in Rome. And it, there was no concentration of Judaism in Antioch. And, you know, if we're being honest, Judaism, Christianity... There is some religious overlap there. There is some organized religion in both of those faiths. There is some sort of morality that's taught that stands out. But in a pagan culture, 
and a, a culture of, of filth in the third largest city in Rome, there was no sort of religion. So these people did stick out like a sore thumb. Now you think about the United States, what's the third largest city in the United States? New York, LA, Chicago, Chicago, Houston's fourth. So it'd be like a comparison on a scale for us looking at Chicago and seeing a city that's completely immoral and in filth. And then here's these people who the outside world looks at them and identifies them and calls them Christians. If you go up and look in verse 22 of Acts chapter 11, it said, When word got to Jerusalem, again, when word got back to Jerusalem about the Christians in Antioch, that they sent Barnabas to the church uh, in Antioch. And it says that when Barnabas got there, he observed two things. And I quote, He saw the grace of God, and he saw with purpose of heart how they cleaved unto the Lord. So again, here's these people who have no religious affiliation, they have no religious background, they have no concept of religion at all, they're taught the scriptures, they're baptized, they're converted, and now they're completely changed people. And it says that when Barnabas got there, he saw the grace of God in that. It wasn't that Barnabas looked at them and thought, well, those are some really good folks that they had the motivation and the determination to change their life and to now live a moral, good life, a saved life in Jesus Christ. He says he saw the grace of God in that. And it goes back to what Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane. I pray that they're unified so that the world may know that you sent me. He saw the power of God and their unity. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together, with all those in every place, call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And so here, Paul, when he writes to the Corinthians, addresses the congregation as the church of God. But he goes on in chapter 12 to say that the members are the body of Christ. You and I individually are part of a body. Remember when Paul talks about the hand can't say to the foot, you're not of any use to me, that we all serve a functioning role, that we as individuals are a part of the body of Christ. He goes on to say in Romans chapter 16 and verse 16, it addresses the churches of Christ greet you. And so here Paul here specifically designates the churches of Christ. We see this name, the churches of Christ. Now that word churches there is plural. The church is not a plurality. The church is singular. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I shall build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Build my church. The church is a singular body. It's a singular unit. It's comprised of local congregations in different areas, but the church itself is a single living organism. And in the first century, there were no denominations. You weren't, in the first century, identifying yourself as a Baptist. You weren't identifying yourself as a Methodist. You weren't calling yourself whatever. You were either a Christian or you were either a pagan. And Paul addresses them as the churches of Christ, the power in the name. So what should the organization look like? In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 through 23, Paul says, And he put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body. So who's the head? Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He's the governing authority of the church. And you and I are comprised of that body. 
uh, to make the body work, to be functional, to have utility in serving the mission of the church. So what's the structure of the scriptures, or what's the structure of, um, of the church? Well, first in uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with bishops and deacons. And so the first group of people we see designated are saints. I'm a saint. I'm a member of the church. I'm a saint. I'm not an elder. I'm not a deacon. I'm not an evangelist. I'm a member of this body, and so therefore I'm a saint. If that's someone like you, you are considered a saint. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints. That's where we get the word saint from. It comes from sanctified. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, we see there are elders and bishops to the saints in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with bishops and deacons. So if this congregation, the, the term elder and bishop is used interchangeably, but Yancey and Matt are our elders here at this congregation. Now, it says, what is, what is the role of an elder in the church? In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, it says, shepherd the flock of God. If you look at the King James Version there, that word shepherd is used to feed. Or you can say, feed the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords of the, over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. So the elders of a congregation have a responsibility. They have a responsibility to, over, to, over, to maintain the health and the stability of a congregation, to keep out the false doctrine infiltrating the church. And it says that they have to do this not by compulsion. So if you're going to be an elder, you can't do it dragging your feet, begrudgingly, not sure if you want to do it or not. In fact, it says you have to do it eagerly. Because here's the reality. If you're going to be an elder, you're going to be dealing with people. You're going to be dealing with problems. You're going to, and if you're not prepared to do that and you don't have the heart to do that, you're going to cause harm to yourself and you're going to cause harm to others around you. It's a very serious, there's a lot of things that go on behind the scenes that a lot of people don't see. And as, a, and as an elder, you have to have the wisdom and the discipline and the heart to be able to fulfill that role. And again, an elder can't take this position uh, in an effort to try to enrich themselves in any way. And they don't have the right to, the, the, what the scriptures say here, lord over um, the congregation. Just like as a husband um, has responsibilities as the head of his house, he doesn't have the right to lord over his wife. And it's the same for the elders. They lead by example. Um, people look to them and respect them. And because of that, they have a willingness uh, to want to follow their lead. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 2 through 7, it says, A bishop, again, or an elder, must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, covetousness, but one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence, not a novice, that word novice means newly planted, so not a newly convert to the faith. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, or he must have a good reputation. And what we can see here in the context of this is that an elder or a bishop has to be a man. It's a masculine role uh, reserved uh, for a man. 
Hebrews chapter uh, 13, verse 17, Obey those who rule over you, and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. And so here it says that an elder takes accountability for the well-being of the flock. So there's a responsibility placed on them that they will answer to God for the souls of this congregation. And so that's very sobering to think about. But also, on the other side of that, as the saint, it says that we should basically not make their job hard. We shouldn't be a problem or be bringing grief upon them. And the reason for it is that it's unprofitable for us to do that. Now, what he means by unprofitable there, I'm not sure, but I know that it's a negative thing. Philippians uh, 1 and 1 again, uh, we've already read, but we see that there are deacons in the congregation. So that, that would be Eddie and Zach at this congregation. 1 Timothy 3, uh, 8 through 12, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let those also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their house as well. And so deacons are servants. Okay? They are to assist the elders in the functioning of the church. You know, I think back to Acts, I think it was Acts chapter 6, at the beginning of that chapter. Uh, the apostles were approached by some Christians. They said, we've got a problem. There are widows being neglected. And the response that the apostles gave them was, we don't have really the ability and time to do this. We don't have time to serve tables. Go find seven men of good reputation that are full of the Holy Ghost and appoint them over this matter. And so their responsibility was to go, because the widows, them not being neglected was important. They were to be taken care of. But the elders had, uh, had a task, or the apostles at that time had a task to preach the word. And so the deacons, traditionally what you see in these roles, are they're maintaining the building, they're working on the yard, they're, they're doing all sort of things to keep the church running and functioning, tending to the physical needs of the congregation. So a very important role. And this is not a role that is taken on by, um, you know, uh, you know, an elder is not appointed by election. An elder is appointed by uh, an evangelist. So an evangelist comes in and finds men who are qualified to be evangelists, who are elder, who are qualified to be elders, who can fulfill that role, who are qualified for that role. And deacons are uh, normally kind of uh, voted in uh, by the congregation of men who are respectable, who they think can serve in those roles. And lastly, we see that um, the body of Christ is made up of evangelists, and that would be people like Mike. In 2 Timothy 4 and 5, but, but be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your, fulfill your ministry. And so an example of this is in Titus chapter 1, verse 5. Titus was a Greek, but obviously he was converted. He followed Paul around. He went to the council in Jerusalem. Uh, Paul obviously entrusted him uh, as an evangelist. Paul says for, uh, says, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city. And so there's the, the authority from the scriptures that said evangelists have the authority to appoint elders and to set in order the congregations. You know, Paul would go and he would set up a church and he would leave. And the problem with leaving is you're going to have problems infiltrate the church. You're going to have false teachers coming into the church. 
And so the, the importance of having leadership and elders to provide that stability for the congregation is one of the, uh, the beautiful things or the important things about why God structured the church the way that he did. So in this area, we have these congregations. These congregations in this local area have these, um, these uh, leadership positions. The evangelists go and serve to appoint those elders, to set those things um, in order that the church can function. So the relationship between the elders, the deacons, and the saints, and the evangelists. Again, the evangelist sets the saints in order, establishes the congregation, the evangelist then goes and ordains men qualified to lead that congregation or ordain them. And then the elders oversee and are responsible for uh, the saints. The elders ordain evangelists. So how do you ask how the evangelists get their title or their role? They're ordained by the elders. The saints follow the elders and they select the deacons. And they respond to the evangelist. The deacons assist the elders. And they serve the saints. And what you see is this integral process where everybody, no matter the position or the role in the congregation, is serving in some capacity. So lastly, in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20, what's the mission of the church? Go therefore and make the disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And so we as the body of Christ are then in task with the mission of going and spreading the gospel, baptizing people, but it doesn't just stop there. When we bring them into the church, then that's when the real work begins by teaching them to observe all things and teaching them to follow the authority of the words of Jesus. And then, uh, so the mission is to make disciples. We'll stop there this morning. Uh, I appreciate your attention. You've been a good audience. Um, if you would uh, like prayers of the congregation, if you're somebody who has not been baptized and added to the church, uh, then we see the importance of why you need to do that throughout this study. And so at this time, if you have a need that we can serve, please come as we stand and sing. Sing, Christ.